This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know what I'm really getting tired of? This avalanche of year-end lists. I mean, it's everywhere. Washington Post had uh, the 21 worst movies of the year. See them if you must. And, you know, the best television shows, the best this, the best that, the best... um, What else am I seeing? The best podcasts of the year. And, you know, some of this is just formulaic. It's filler. Uh, A lot of people not working this week. So you do, it's the equivalent of uh, uh, a rock group putting out a greatest hits album. Well, here are the 10 podcasts that we like the most. And you're done, right? I don't know. I'm sure some people like it, but I just feel like it's recycling. Um, Sad note here for me, uh, Tom Smothers of the Smothers Brothers, passing away at the age of 86. Now... I guess a lot of people today don't even remember the Smothers Brothers. And when I was growing up, they were the hot comedy duo, Tom and Dick Smothers. And they were very clean cut, and they would stand there with the instruments, and they would start to play a song, and then they would just start to bicker. And I had their comedy album. Uh, the first section, I believe, of the first... You wouldn't call it a song, but was, as would often happen, became the signature line. Tommy would turn to Dick and say, Mom always liked you best. But the important thing about them is that they went on to get a show on CBS. And these guys, these two guys, would talk about the Vietnam War. They would talk about racial tensions. They would talk about drug use. They would talk about religious fundamentalism. The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, who was called, started in 1967. And some of the writers they had, obviously at a young age, Rob Reiner, Steve Martin, Pat Paulson, is amazing. But the thing is that at the time that they were doing all these hot-button topics, virtually no one else on television was doing it. I mean, today it would be completely unremarkable. And they had these constant battles with the CBS censors. In fact, after they were doing a, uh, a sketch, Tom Smothers and Elaine May about two professional censors, and CBS cut the words breast and heterosexual. Really? Um, Smothers was quoted as saying, the censors censored the censorship bit. It's a real infringement of our creative rights. And then, um, in the spring of 1969, 
CBS was tired of all the controversy and all the complaints, especially from its rural affiliates, and canceled the show. And it was replaced by Hee Haw. I mean, you couldn't have a greater cultural shift than taking off the edgy Smothers Brothers in favor of Hee Haw. And there was a news conference the next day, and Tommy Smothers said, in any other medium, we would be regarded as moderate. Here we are regarded as rebels and extremists. Tommy Smothers kind of ran the show, and he was more liberal than his brother Dick. But I just wanted to do a little bit of a tribute. Okay, in the world of politics, John Fetterman, who's making a lot of news lately, uh, the senator who, of course, uh, has bounced back from a stroke, he doesn't want to hear any Democrat talking about whether President Biden could lose the election. And one very prominent Democrat from the Clinton era who has been talking about that is James Carville. So Fetterman was being interviewed, I guess, and he said, I'll use this as another opportunity to to tell James Carville to shut the F up. He didn't uh, truncate the word. My man hasn't been relevant since grunge was a thing. I don't know why he believes it's helpful to say these kinds of things about an incredibly difficult circumstance with an incredibly strong and decent and excellent president. Carville had said he was very pessimistic about Biden's chances. He was asked on CNN, uh, it sounds to me like you think if the election were held today, Biden would lose. And James responded, me and everyone else. So Carville was asked for his response. He said, just a second, I am relevant to uh, Senate Democrats running for re-election, have asked for my help in their races, and I'm glad he's feeling better meeting John Fetterman. So I think he didn't want to get down in the mud. Lauren Boebert, you know her, the uh, very conservative congresswoman from Colorado, who kind of screwed things up for herself when she was caught in that movie theater in Denver, not just vaping, but how shall I put this? Uh, Groping, uh, you know, making out with her then boyfriend. Well, she was looking at the very strong possibility of losing re-election because when she was um, in the last election, she scraped by 546 votes. And the guy who was running against her raised a huge, has raised a huge amount of money. And if I placed bets on such things, I would say she's going to lose. So what she's done is She's pulled out of that district, and she's going to run in another district in Colorado. She said there was dark money directed at her to steal this seat, and she said this would be a fresh start for her after her divorce and, quote, personal mistakes. She said a lot of prayer, a lot of tough conversations, a lot of perspective. Convinced me this is the best way I can continue to fight for Colorado. She said the Hollywood Hollywood elites, Aspen Money Men, and George Soros can go and pound sand. But here's the thing. 
I mean, of course, she's trying to elevate it into some kind of crusade, and she did admit to personal mistakes. But the district that she's moving into is about 15, 17 points more conservative than the one she's abandoning. So, look, this is all about she doesn't want to lose. She wants to remain a member of Congress. You can put up all the, oh, the, you know, the libs are out to get me and so forth. But she has now pulled an interesting maneuver saying bye-bye to the district she has represented and saying hi to this other district that has a lot more Republicans. Speaking of Colorado, the Colorado Republican Party has appealed to the Supreme Court that state court ruling knocking Donald Trump off the ballot. As I'm speaking to you, Donald Trump has not yet filed his Supreme Court appeal, says he's going to, doesn't have much time because the deadline for the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and overturn this, if it is so inclined, is next week. And then the ballots are going to be printed. I guess you could argue the Colorado Republican Party is just as uh, injured as the candidate himself because their guy being taken off the ballot or one of their candidates, I guess I should say, um, fundamentally changing the course of American democracy, the party's lawyers say, and maybe they just have lawyers who write faster than Donald Trump's lawyers. Okay, the New York Times, this is really fascinating, has sued Microsoft and OpenAI, which of course is famous now and created the chatbot, Chat GPT, accusing the companies of copyright infringement and using the newspaper's intellectual property to train large language models. I'm looking here at a write-up by uh, CNBC. So Microsoft invests in OpenAI, supplies OpenAI with technology, and the Times of Suits says these companies must be held to account for the billions of dollars in statutory and actual damages for the unlawful copying and use of the Times's uniquely valuable works. Times said in a statement recognizes the power and potential of AI for public for the public and for journalism, but the journalistic material should be used for commercial gain only with permission from the original source. If Microsoft and OpenAI want to use our work for commercial purposes. The law requires that they first obtain our permission. They have not done so. So, look, I don't think they're going to get billions of dollars, but it is true. If, if, if a company like OpenAI is using New York Times stories, which, as they point out, you know, they have to spend a lot of money to pay reporters and editors and photographers, um, then... That shouldn't be free. OpenAI said, well, we're having ongoing conversations. We hope to find a beneficial way to work together. In other words, we hope to get this suit dropped. Now, story number one. Nikki Haley has really stepped in it. It's funny. I was just reading a story in the Times a day or so ago about what a disciplined candidate she is. That she goes around, gives the same speech, over and over again, 
avoids too many personal attacks on Donald Trump or mostly policy-oriented criticism of Donald Trump, doesn't um, take all that many questions from reporters on the trail, though she certainly does TV interviews. And yesterday in New Hampshire, where the town hall is the coin of the realm, one voter stood up and asked Nikki Haley, what is the cause, what was the cause of the Civil War? And this is all over the webs right now. And she said it was about the role of government and the freedoms of what people could and couldn't do. Now, do you see anything missing in that answer? Civil War? She was the governor of South Carolina. She is the one who and this was a huge controversy in her state, took down the Confederate flag from the State House grounds. And the questioner at this town hall said, in the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. And I must say, Haley appeared a little flustered during this whole exchange. And then she said, what do you want me to say about slavery? And then just said, next question. So, look, Nikki Haley is a smart and savvy candidate. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's not somebody who just pops off. And so, as a matter of history, her state of South Carolina was the first to secede from the Union. And in the very first paragraph of its statement of secession, the South Carolina officials of that time talked about opposition by other parts of the country to slavery. That word was used. Every elementary school student knows that the Civil War was fought over slavery, that the South seceded to protect the institution of slavery. Now, you could dress it up with states' rights and everything else, but why would she not want to mention the S-word? And I think the answer has to be, she thought, in the climate of today's Republican Party, she would lose support. There would be some people who don't want to hear the word slavery. I mean, we're talking about, you know, something that happened in 1860 and 1861, it's pretty settled. There's not, a, you know, this is this is separate from the argument about should you honor Confederate war heroes or even show the flag because they were fighting for what they thought was right at the time. But Nikki Haley must have concluded that this would be a misstep, and in the course of that, she con- committed the biggest mistake of her campaign so far. This is all over TV. It's all over the web. Nikki Haley wouldn't say the word slavery. Now, obviously, maybe even by the time that you hear this, she's going to put out a clarifying statement, and in every TV interview she's done, this is going to come up. And it just really is mysterious to me that she could make this kind of unforced error. Oh, here's interesting. Here's a story in the Washington Post about Haley that I just don't think proves the case. Starts out by uh, with a woman named Linda Portel 
in Iowa. She was watching uh, an attack ad against Nikki Haley. It was a spot tying Nikki to Hillary Clinton, which is a pretty bad comparison to make in a Republican primary. And this particular woman watching this ad is concerned about this portrayal of Nikki Haley as the uh, former UN ambassador has risen in the polls amid a shrinking GOP field. She's faced escalating attacks from rivals and their allies that critics regard as sexist and meant to single out her gender in the Republican Party. Well, first of all, she's talked about being the only woman in the field. Second of all, having an attack ad used against you, everybody gets that if you become a, a serious candidate who's moving up as she had been, as she has been. Oh, I see. According to the Washington Post, the party remains dominated by Trump, who routinely attacks women with sexist and demeaning language. But, yeah, he's called her bird brain. But some Haley backers say they're increasingly concerned about this trend. Haley supporter Bart Weller, who went to her town hall in Iowa, said one of his brothers told him, I don't want to vote for a woman to be president. Well, I'm sure there are other people in that category. Male rivals have gone after Haley in ways that some GOP critics say is either flatly sexist or carries sexist undertones, such as Trump saying in an interview this year that she's overly ambitious. Haley said it used to bother her, but now she considers it being a badass. And it is true. You don't, it's very hard for me to think of an example of a male candidate who's called overly ambitious. It is a a, a rap placed on female candidates. But still, I mean, I just don't think, I mean, this is identity politics. She's the only woman and her supporters are like, oh, any attacks on her are sexist? Well, that's not true. You want to be treated equally. If you want to be treated equally, you put up with attack ads. And even things like overly ambitious, which I completely agree, is a label uh, affixed only to women running for office, but at the same time, is hardly the most horrible thing ever said about somebody running for president. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Number two, speaking of identity politics, I want to dwell on a column by Jonah Goldberg, who I've known forever, now editor-in-chief of The Dispatch. Um, He starts off by talking about Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, and how she was attracting some criticism for being a diversity hire. And he quotes uh, a piece in the GRIO, black-oriented site, Whenever a successful black person does something that offends the sensibility of whiteness, the diversity hire narrative rears its ugly head. Head of the NAACP 
says criticizing gay amounts to, quote, nothing more than political theatrics advancing a white supremacist agenda. So you might think there would be a healthy debate over the completely disastrous testimony that Claudine gave Gay delivered on Capitol Hill where she refused to condemn anti-Semitism, almost like not mentioning slavery. Or the multiple instances of plagiarism, which I have continued to talk about, of which she has been found liable by Harvard, but nothing happens to her. So from there, Jonah goes to Kamala Harris. She's been uh, attacked as a diversity and equity hire. Now, Jonah says, the further a successful person is from whiteness, is hilarious, ridiculous, hilariously ridiculous, and analytically amazeballs. But we'll come back to that. Um, there's also a mention of Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary. Jonah says, I don't think she's fantastic at the job, but she's eminently qualified for it. She's also a pretty thoughtful and serious person who has the misfortune of having a very difficult job. You try to make the case that Joe Biden is so energetic that age isn't an issue. But Kamala Harris, how is she not a diversity hire? During a CNN debate, Joe Biden promised if I'm elected president, I will commit to uh, pick a woman to be vice president. Later, he signaled he would pick a black woman, and he narrowed it down to four candidates, four black women. Big pressure campaign from elected Democrats who wanted such a pick, and then, of course, he picked Senator Kamala Harris. Black women are tired of being considered the help, said Karen Finney, Democratic strategist. This is uh, back in 2020. So, Jonah goes on to make this point. Maybe you strongly disagree. He says this is a heads-we-win-tails-you-lose situation. The country spends billions on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Corporations, universities, unions, major media organizations all have well-funded DEI departments. Colossal social pressure to hire for diversity. But for some reason, if you call someone a diversity hire, that's an outrageously racist charge. You can't have it both ways. Either diversity was a really important factor in picking Kamala Harris, or it wasn't. If it wasn't, then you can't celebrate Biden's pick as a diversity hire while simultaneously getting outraged when other people say the same thing. And he says, I have no problem with diversity hiring, especially in politics. Politics is about coalition building. Personally, I think Kamala Harris was a bad pick, not because she's a black Asian woman, but because she's not a very good politician. Some food for thought there. It is, of course, denigrating to say someone's a diversity hire because the implication is that they're not qualified. But what Goldberg is saying is that they may be, well be qualified, but if anybody criticizes them, it's like, how dare you? All right, number three. Let's turn to the war. Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu, 
continues to say that his goal is to dismantle Hamas. And the New York Times has kind of a skeptical story about this. Could this even be done? Even as the Biden administration pushes uh, for Israel to, I wouldn't say wind things down, but move to a less destructive phase of the war that would kill fewer civilians in Gaza. Critics both within and outside Israel question whether resolving to destroy such a deeply entrenched organization was ever realistic. One former Israeli official called the plan vague. Here's the president of France. I think we have reached a moment when the Israeli authorities will have to define more clearly what their final objective is, says Emmanuel Macron. The total destruction of Hamas, does anybody think that's possible? If, if it's that, he says, the war will last 10 years. So Hamas first emerged back in 1987 and obviously has survived. Analysts think the most optical outcome for Israel would be at least degrading Hamas's military capabilities to prevent a repeat of the October 7th attack. Here is a senior Palestine analyst at the International Crisis Group. To assume you can simply uproot an organization like that is fantasy. Israeli military says it's killed about 8,000 Hamas fighters out of a force estimated somewhere between 25 and 40,000. But it's unclear how that count is being made. About another 500 have surrendered. So Netanyahu said on Sunday, the war is exacting a very heavy cost from us. That was a day announcing that 15 Israeli soldiers had been killed just in the previous 48 hours. The military has now promised $400,000 for information leading to the leader of Hamas, Yahya Sinwar, and $100,000 for a deputy who's the head of the military wing. I don't know. I don't know. I I mean, I think there's really some valid points here. Can Israel ever completely destroy Hamas? Would the attacks and all the 2,000-pound bombs that have been dropped and the death of many civilian families, and believe me, I am not likening Israel, which tries to avoid civilian casualties, with Hamas, which revels in civilian casualties, whose whole purpose of existence is to kill as many Jews as possible. Not likening those. But could the destruction in Gaza have made Hamas even more popular? Or if Palestinians could freely vote, would they get rid of this dictatorship. In the rubble, it's hard to know the answer. But the Times is echoing a question that's being asked within Israel itself. How long will this war go on? Can Hamas really be completely eradicated? Or does Bibi just want to prolong the war? Because once it's over, he's probably going to be ousted from power. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number four. 
there has been a ruling by the Michigan Supreme Court that Donald Trump can remain on the ballot. This is one of those 14th Amendment lawsuits. So, of all the states that have grappled with this so far, and there are more to come, there's only Colorado, whose high court, appointed by, all appointed by Democratic governors, or a governor, uh, says that Trump's out. Name can't appear. Section 3, 14th Amendment, he led an insurrection. He's certainly been accused by the media, by his opponents, of being responsible for January 6th. He isn't even charged specifically with insurrection in the Jack Smith case. So, a lower court judge and an appeals court in Michigan said Trump could remain on the ballot, and the Michigan Supreme Court says not taking up the case. So the lower court ruling, the appeals court ruling, stands. Trump praised the decision, saying that these challenges are a pathetic gambit to rig the election. But right now, the only one who has successfully executed that gambit is Colorado, and that may end. Meanwhile, federal prosecutors have asked the judge, this is a Jack Smith filing, to bar him at his trial from introducing irrelevant disinformation that's often part of his campaign speeches. To blame law enforcement for failing to properly prepare for the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Although the court can recognize these efforts for what they are and disregard them, the jury may not, says the special counsel's filing. The court should not permit the defendant to turn the courtroom into a forum in which he propagates irrelevant disinformation and should reject his attempt to inject politics into this proceeding. And Trump calling this motion by Jack Smith illegal and unconstitutional and referring to the prosecutor as Joe Biden's errand boy. Number five comes from the Wall Street Journal. And this is about social media. And it makes a point that I, perhaps not being in the right demographic group, um, had not fully realized I mean, I had a sense of it, but I didn't realize things had gone this far. So, here's the lead. Lots of people log into social media every day. Fewer and fewer are actually posting. Uh, Starts out with Isaiah Hug. That's the guy's name. Spends about two hours a day scrolling through Instagram. But his last post to his main feed was over a year ago. He occasionally posts stories which vanish after 24 hours. This is a 24-year-old Marine artillery officer based in California who says, I don't need to add more friction to my life and have people bickering about who I voted for or what I think. He prefers one-on-one or group chats. Billions of people access social media monthly, but they're posting less and favoring a more passive experience. 61% according to the firm Morning Consult, 
of uh, U.S. adults with a social media account, so they become very selective about what they post because you get beat up. Because on places like X and Facebook and even Instagram, you get smacked around if you want to talk about Trump or Biden or January 6th or anything like that. People say they can't control the content they see. They can become more protective about sharing their lives online. They say the fun of social media has fizzled. So they're what's called lurkers. You know, they like to read all this stuff, but they're very selective or maybe don't post at all. But there's an even larger point here. Instagram and Facebook, as well as X, and of course TikTok, have become some of the most powerful companies and platforms in the world. And the threat to that interaction is a threat to their business, says the journal. And the companies are responding. They're enabling more private experiences where you basically message your friends. Instagram recently expanded a close friends feature. You talk to the people who you like and trust and not all these randos who at some point you friended or they friended you or they followed you, etc. More than half, according to uh, another research company, believe the quality of social media has declined in the last five years, you think? Uh, Respondents citing misinformation, toxicity, and the proliferation of bots. I'm not a huge bot fan myself. But what they are doing, especially places like TikTok, is posting videos. It's more fun, and you don't have to get denounced, criticized, smacked around, beaten up, uh, slammed, slurred by everybody else in the social media world. Uh, Adam Masseri, the head of Instagram, says... Just this past July, users on the app were spending most of the time in DMs, direct messages. All the friend sharing is moving in that direction, he said. When recommending a movie or TV show to a friend, people were doing it more often in person or via text or email, less often on social media. Easier to state opinions verbally than have them set in stone. So even like, hey, I really like this movie or you should catch this on Netflix. Even that. A lot of people, I mean, according to the head of Instagram, don't want to share with the, with the world. They just don't like the combat. They don't like the toxicity. And yes, this does seem like a real threat to these companies. It's one reason TikTok is so popular because it's so visual and it's not that a lot of politics isn't discussed there, but it's a video site. So even saying, hey, you ought to watch this Amazon series. It's terrific. People don't want to do it or are increasingly less frequent about doing it. And that says a lot about the climate on social media. And I just found this piece very enlightening about where we're going. I mean, I still publicly post my stuff because I'm in the TV business and I like feedback. And, you know, 
If people are abusive or think it's really a lot of fun to curse you out, there's always a button you can hit and not have to see that stuff. And with that, I'll probably post this on X and Facebook as soon as we get it edited. Thanks for being along for the ride. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.